I'm Deborah Winter. You're listening to Drinking and Droshing Torah with a Twist, and I'm just here to compete with Gabe on who can communicate the most over Zoom with just our eyebrows. Welcome to Drinking and Droshing Torah with a Twist. I'm Gabe Snyder. And I'm Amanda Weiss. Well, Amanda, another week, another portion, but this one is different. Why is this Torah portion different than all other Torah portions? Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, is found in Parashat Beshalach, where the Israelites sing praise to God. In honor of this very special musical portion, we have a very, very special musical episode with three very, very, very special guests. Get ready, this is going to be a good one. We are thrilled to kick off a very special episode, our B-Mitzvah episode, that's episode 13 for Beshalach, with our first ever trio of superstar musicians, and we're so excited to have them here that I couldn't help but share the wealth in giving their shout-outs tonight. So, first up, we welcome Cantor Danielle Rodnitsky. Cantor Danielle Rodnitsky is a proud alumna and ordinee of the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, class of 2020. In 2013, she graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. Very impressive. From Washington University in St. Louis with a BA in Spanish and Psychology. She has been song leading and worship leading for over 15 years, and she is honored to have sung with summer camps, synagogues, and regional youth groups across the United States. Each such experience has energized her, consistently moved by the spark created whenever people sing together in community. Kanta Rodnitsky is passionate about crafting innovative and intentional prayer experiences, and she is grateful to have explored this topic in her studies at HECJR, as well as through meaningful internship experiences, most recently as the cantorial intern at Central Synagogue in New York City. She is thrilled to continue spending time in the playground of liturgical creativity, now with the incredible clergy team of Westchester Reform Temple in Scarsdale, New York, in her role as assistant cantor. Hey, Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Next up, we have Happy Hoffman. Happy Hoffman hails from Memphis, Tennessee, and has spent the better part of the past decade building musical communities around the world. She studied Jewish studies and music at Indiana University. Happy recently became the cantorial soloist for Temple Israel in Memphis. Happy is an award-winning indie folk artist whose 2016 album, It's Yours, by Eric and Happy, debuted at number 11 on the iTunes singer-songwriter chart. Happy's guest faculty roles and performances range from March of the Living and the International Holocaust Remembrance Ceremony at Auschwitz to APAC, the United Nations, Austin South by Southwest, and the Sundance Film Festival. In March of 2018, 
Happy helped bring the first ever Jewish song leader training seminar in the region to Moldova and Moscow, and also served on the faculty for Lift Every Voice song leading conference. Welcome, Happy. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. After a decade spent traveling the U.S. as a freelance musician in the Jewish community, Deborah Winter started settling into congregational life just a few months before the onset of a global pandemic. An alumna of the URJ Camp Harlem, Deborah is a lover of all things camp and spent 15 collective summers leading and teaching music at camps across the country from Warwick, New York to Angeles Oaks, California. She has served on the faculty of Hava Nashira, Lev, Lift Every Voice, and Nifty's Nashir Song Leader Training Conferences, and was the Associate Music Director for the URJ Biennial in 2019. Deborah currently lives in Colorado with her four-year-old rescue pup, Frisco, while serving as worship music artist at Temple Micah in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Idan. Thank you all. And uh, welcome Idan's voice also to the show. It's a, it's a Shehechianu moment for us all. Man, Deborah beat me to it, so I'll, I'll actually switch <laughs> things up a little bit. So, And I'd be remiss if we didn't say hi to the world's best producer, Sup Idan, thanks for reading. Yes, hello. And as always, uh, my favorite and kind of only, but really he's superb, so why would I want another one? Co-host Gabe Snyder. Sup, Gabe? Hey, Amanda. So excited to kick off this new episode. What about you? Very excited. Gabe, I feel like this week's Torah portion should be right up your alley. I mean, it's full of music, right? I'm excited about it. It's a very fun Torah portion. And so if I were looking for a clip of this week's Song of the Sea, or if I wanted to understand what this portion was about, do you think you'd give me a 30-second rundown? Hmm. I think I could try. I think it won't be 30 seconds, because as we've learned on this podcast, that's not really a thing that's possible but I'm still going to try. I hear there can be miracles if you believe. Nice. Pharaoh has let the people go, only took 10 plagues, but okay, but GPS hasn't been invented yet, and God isn't about the Israelites go the short route in case they don't want to go back to Egypt. Moses remembered Joseph somehow, even though that was an entire book ago, but whatever, someone obviously told him about it, and brings his bones back with him all the way to Israel, following God's lead, either in cloud form by day or fire form by night. God warns Moses that Pharaoh's about to change his mind because, you know, God is making Pharaoh change his mind, and come after the Israelites so that they should stay where they are and, you know, wait for the Egyptians to come, because that makes sense. So we won't worry about the detail of that decision. All of the chariots and the officers with them follow Pharaoh's order and head after the Israelites, coming up on them pretty quick because, you know, the Israelites weren't moving. Cool. So Pharaoh's coming, the Israelites are freaking out, and say to Moses, are you serious? Why do you take us out if we're just gonna die here anyway? Moses says, calm down. Okay, he really says, have no fear, God's going to bring us a miracle, if you believe. That might be adapted from the documentary, The Prince of Egypt. But really, who's going to argue this is a podcast? 
God checks Moses and is like, hey, tell them to walk, lift up the rod and split the sea, and I'll get the Egyptians to chase you, and then watch what happens, I'll gain glory forever. And the angel of God moves from in front of the people to in back of them, protecting them from the approaching Egyptians. This dark cloud makes sure that the Egyptians were slowed down while the waters split and the Israelites made it across the dry land. Dayenu? Not quite, there's still more story. So the Egyptians eventually make it through the cloud to the split waters, and God or Moses closes the sea and the Egyptians' chariots and horses drown. It took all of this, but finally the Egyptians had faith in God and Moses' ten plagues, the ability to flee, and it wasn't until the sea parted that they finally gave in. Good. I'm sure that will last a long time. But here's the great part. The song of the sea is here. Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston have this awesome duet about miracles, and some kids start singing, Ashira, Ladonai, Kigoga. All seriousness, though, this is a song of all-out triumphant praise of a strong warrior god defeating the enemy. Moses and the Israelites sing to God and celebrate. We get a whole piece of liturgy out of the song of the sea. Shout out to Micha Mocha. And Miriam, the prophet, the heroine from the beginning of our story, starts the most epic timbrel dance party of all time. She brings in everyone to join the song and dance, and Moses starts the journey from the sea. You'd think the people would be happy, right? The celebration would go on forever? Three days. The people grumble and complain in three days at Marah because they're bitterly thirsty. God gives them water through a piece of wood. We've seen crazier things, so we're just gonna let that one be. And God basically says, I've got you covered. I'm a healer. You can trust me. And that's what you've got with Beshalach. <sighs> 250. Nice. <laughs> Love when I break three minutes. Very exciting. <laughs> that was very impressive. Yeah. That was Same great. reaction as Deb. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed most of the time. So success on that. Nice. <laughs> I am uh, excited for my annual rewatch of the documentary, The Prince of Egypt, in just a couple months. It is an excellent documentary. I showed a clip to my confirmation class last night. So we're already on our way there. We want to be clear that we are not in any way sponsored by DreamWorks or anybody else who owns or distributes The Prince of Egypt. It's just the best movie. It's a brilliant compilation of Midrash in cinematic form, and everybody should watch it. And I think if we can uh, figure out getting the rights, we might hear a bit of the very uh, referenced song that we just uh, named a lot in this episode. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. That'd be cool. You will when you believe. Beshalak is a beautiful portion. It's, it's really an incredible insight into the human condition of what we do when we're stuck between a sea and a horde of Egyptians. Generally, we hear we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, but, you know, the Bible takes us one step further. And it's a real place where we have to focus on beliefs, the insights that we're learning along the way, the, the things that in, take us on the journey, the kind of passions that push us forward or hold us back, depending on whether we're following the cloud or the fire or whatever picture it is that we have in front of us. And so my question for the three of you, our first ever trio, is what pictures do you see when you're doing your work? What's driving your passions? What are you following these days? I, I think the, the picture that's in my mind changes 
often. Uh, these days, it's enough for me to hold the image of what it's like to sing in community, which is not a thing I've been able to do in many months. I I was able to come back to Denver, Colorado, where I last lived, but my community I'm serving is still in Washington, D.C. And the reason I'm able to do that is because we are not gathering more than on Zoom, which, of course, doesn't allow us to sing together very often. But it's been really helpful for me to hold in my mind the image of us singing together in one room and in my eyes the image of many boxes of people smiling, sharing joy, clapping and joining together. My answer was going to be very similar to Deb's. I, you know, the thing that has always moved me about this work and inspired me to become a song leader and later a cantorial soloist and later a cantor, this has been a long, (laughs) a long road, is always the thing that happens when people sing together. I just wanted to live in that feeling, that special spark, I think is the word I used in the bio that Amanda read so beautifully. There's something that gets created when people sing together in in community and harmony, especially at places like Havanashira, where Deb, Happy, and I have been together before. And really trying to hold on to that for the last 10 months, it's already been, you know, since the last time we could be together in a space singing and not afraid of aerosolizing and infecting and all the things that come with this crazy pandemic. And so for me to hold that picture of spaces in which I've sung with people in the past has been really helpful because my Zoom services for my congregation, I only really see the clergy as we're praying. I don't see our congregants. And so I really have to hold that picture. I really have to imagine and remember the feeling of singing in community that way in order to sort of get me through this time in a way that feels authentic and meaningful. Beautiful. So... So for me, what, um, what drives my work, and, and especially right now, is the fact that we are all connected. There is a spark of divine within all of us. And like, like y'all said, I have these images of us singing in the same place. But right now, even all being in different places, um, in the beginning of the pandemic, what became kind of, I started thinking about, okay, sacred time. We know about sacred time in Judaism and time shared with people felt so special. So singing or or sharing time on a service or, or some kind of live stream felt really, really sacred. It felt really connective to be able to share one moment, even if you're in different time zones or on the other side of the world. And so that is something that, that has really kept me going lately. Nice. I think it's incredibly telling and at least a little bit for for me as somebody who does who works in the same field. I I also feel that longing for a time when we could sing together, that that hearing somebody else sing with you, that collective energy that gets built up, that doesn't translate over Zoom. I'm curious and i think that this is probably this is the easiest parallel for me to draw but we see this moment of crossing the red sea or the sea of reeds or whatever and all of the people start singing together and they start dancing and it's exuberant and it's joyous and there's praise and there's song and there's timbrels which are things and It's so exciting. 
I'm I'm wondering if you see yourself in that moment, if, you know, we're called to see ourselves at Sinai. I'm wondering if you see yourselves in that moment, in that moment of joy, and if that is another aspect of what we're longing for. So I actually, I have that moment on one side of my tallit that I wear every Shabbat morning and can look down and see at any time to draw upon it as the Torah's greatest call to communal singing. I'm also thinking about what you just said, Gabe, about we're called to see ourselves at Sinai, but we also read in the Haggadah on Passover every year that each one of us should feel as though we personally were freed from Egypt, that we personally crossed the sea. And so I think... Of course, that's true, right? We're all supposed to do that work all the time, not just us Jewish professionals, but all Jews everywhere. Um, And so definitely I see myself in that moment and like everything else in life and in our sacred story, definitely there's celebration and singing and having watched the clip from the Prince of Egypt last night, (laughs) not to continue uh, hammering home that we love this movie, they actually show the complexity of emotions that people might have been feeling at that moment. It's not instantaneous celebration. And maybe it wasn't at the time when that happened, in quotation marks, right? It can be true even if it didn't really happen. They just witnessed plagues and destruction. They witnessed miracles of the sea parting and crossing to the other side safely. They also witnessed the drowning and deaths of many Egyptians. All of those things had to be held at the same time. And so I think crossing to the other side, yes, they should celebrate the moment of transformation from slavery to free people. And as we know, it took a really long time for them to sort of accept we're not slaves in Egypt anymore. A whole generation of people had to die before that could really translate. So I think, yes, I see myself in it. And especially now in the pandemic and with all the things that we've endured, I see the larger complexity of that moment as well. I actually hadn't ever envisioned myself in that moment, but I'm so inspired by you sharing that and both of your answers. I think that sometimes it it can help to think about what moment are you serving and to know that you are a part of a story that has been going on, you know, a really long time can give you the the power, the inspiration that you might need in that moment. So I plan to think about it in the future. Thank you for that. So to dive into that complexity a little more, the complexity of the situation, um, because you're right, we are called to see ourselves ki'ilu, or if you're Israeli, ki'ilu, <laughs> that we physically ourselves went out of Egypt. And yet, we know that there's some weird generational stuff going on. We have Joseph's bones with us on that journey, carrying with us somebody who was born outside of Egypt, then came to Egypt and is now leaving again. We also have all of these people who have left Egypt, and that's exciting and it's wonderful, but we know, because we're the readers of this story, and we've read it before, that they're not going to make it to the promised land. That all of those people, they, the next generation will make it in, but they won't. And so how do we deal with that? And so I'm wondering if we can bring that complexity a little more into our current time. We're talking about these pictures that we have in our heads as we're leading of our congregants singing with us or of singing with our friends. And we're at this moment of 
isolation, of sadness, with without any of those things, I'm wondering if we can complicate that image a little more and see what we might have carried in with us and what we might be taking out. I'm not sure if that question made any sense, and if it didn't, then Amanda's going to fix it. I think that question made a lot of sense, perhaps too much sense. I think it went in in several directions and was several questions. But one thing I was struck by in in reading this particular piece of Moses choosing to bring Joseph's bones uh, with him into this land is the idea that Moses understood the need for a rooting in communal memory and bringing this sense of our past, our collective past with us. Moses, who did not grow up knowing his ancestry and his communal tradition. So maybe all the more so Moses was able to see how important it is for us to have that and to learn from our past and to bring it with us as we journey into places unknown, even if we are not the people to ultimately get there. I'm thinking about just this feeling of there is an entire generation, whatever we want to mean by that, of people who who will not make it to whatever our new normal becomes in Jewish life, in congregational life, and in life in general, right? You know, we're all waiting to see what comes next. What is our promised land going to be? We're kind of in the Omer period of the wandering still. What is our new promised land? I'm not sure that we know the answer to that question yet. And unfortunately, there are these... 300 plus thousand people who are just not going to be there to see it. I'm also thinking about something I heard recently from a rabbi here in Westchester, Rabbi Shira Milgram, who said, the thing I'm the most afraid of is that we're going to forget everything we learned in this pandemic, that we're going to forget what it meant to go back to basics and really understand what's truly important. And so my goal, when we reach whatever the promised land may be, is that we remember that. We remember our values and, and what really matters. I think that that ties also into something I continue to notice in in rereading through this Parsha in advance of this week, which is this fear of the unknown, of what lays on the other side of this wandering, of this journeying, and, and this continued refrain of, why did you even bring us here? Why are we in this wilderness where we could die, where we are don't know how to feed ourselves? And of course, us looking back on this from the benefit of it being history, we can see how terrible what was familiar to them was this idea of slavery as their comfort is almost unfathomable to us, but it's what they knew and it's where they had established lives that they knew how to live. And so it's a great reminder for us all to continue to trudge through this wilderness and journey toward the unknown because we can build a new normal together and that the normal that we came from was so unlivable for so many people in ways that we're only just now seeing. That just made me think of, you know, the time we're living in right now in the United States. As a disclaimer, we're recording this before the inauguration, despite Parshat B'Shalach, you know, this episode airing after the 25th of January. And so we're really living through this moment of 
Maybe what brings us comfort as a country is rooted in many years of oppression and privilege, and we're now facing this national reckoning of, yes, that's comfortable, but is that really the thing we should be going back to? Or is, is there something else ahead? Should we be working together towards something else? I certainly feel that the latter is, is the better <laughs> course. Um, and I don't know what that means, especially in a pandemic where we feel like we're all in our individual homes and we can't go do the organizing work as a community. And so what does it mean to use the privilege that we have to help make a difference, especially during this time? That's a big question I've been facing these days. So what I hear uh, a lot of what's being said is there is a decent amount of juggling many emotions and truths at the same time. Um, and somewhat of a lack of surety about our footing. What I do realize is at times of insurity, at times of feeling unstable on your feet, a lot of people look to music to unite them. A lot of people look to leaders who will bring them together through these concerts, through these inspirational songs. How do you find the inspiration in your music to lead through that avenue? to lead through the music that you gift to the people who are able to spend that time with you and share in that talent with you. Um, and I'm going to start with Happy. Thank you, Amanda. So there have definitely been so many truly emotional moments that call for, for music and leadership. And I think before each one of them, I've just had to remind myself to tap into what's real, to tap into let whatever's happening um, flow through me, because that's, that's how it will connect to other people. I think I see my, my job in a lot of situations as also giving people access to emotions that might be bubbling under the surface, emotions that they want to feel. And the, the power of music is letting people feel those those things, giving people a way to access them. So, you know, and there have been moments where I get emotional before before leading something and I just try to, to do my best to to let that, you know, keep it together but let that show because that's what that's what's happening for me. So I'm sure that that's what's happening for other people and and that's okay. But that's a moment of, of service that I feel honored to, to be a part of. I find one of the biggest challenges in shepherding people through difficult moments in song is to maintain my personal connection to the emotion of the moment without needing to disconnect myself from it in order to lead the moment. And that's, that's a hard balance to strike. Um, but it, it is important for us to be a part of the community that we lead and to be authentically human as we are leading people through their most human moments. I echo everything that Happy and Deborah shared just now, agree very strongly with all of it. And it's making me think about the portion, of course, because at this huge moment of transformation and drama in our story, we get this song, a song of the sea. And Moses 
our frontal sort of important leader appointed by God in that moment says, Ashir al Adonai kiga I will sing to Adonai. And we go through all the verses of the song and then Miriam at the end picks back up and tells the Israelites, Shiru Adonai kiga y'all sing. I'm adopting my Cantor Ellen Dreskin uh, translation <laughs> skills, I don't know. Uh, y'all sing to Adonai. And so it's not just a commentary on the difference in leadership between Moses and Miriam, I think, although it could be that Moses is more of the frontal leader and Miriam perhaps is our communal song leader, as the three of us might like to think. And I think they can be equally good. It's just about the transformation that happens even in the course of the song at the transformational moment, the community is going from 600,000 people who each individually had this crazy experience, and now they're really a collective. They might have been sort of a collective before, right? They were all walking together and they were all camped out, as Gabe said in the introduction, waiting for the Egyptians to catch up to them. So they were a group, but somehow that's now different, and they are shiruing. They are singing together now in a different way than the way Moses sings at the beginning. And I think that is the type of leadership that I'm thinking about also during this pandemic. Is it just me in my little Zoom box singing to Adonai? Is it all of us? Do I need to have that picture in my head of the times where we have sung together to remember that even if it feels like it's just me, it's actually all of us? I think that the Torah portion here really answers some of that question and, and illuminates it for me. Yeah, and I think part of part of what I try to remember on the other side is that it is all of us and it also has to be me. That I also am adding my voice not just as a leader, but as a member of the community and accessing my humanity and my authenticity and my prayer in that moment. We haven't spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about prayer leadership. We've talked about leadership in lots of other forms, but prayer is something that we haven't really touched on yet. And so I'm I'm curious what it means to each of you to not only be a, a singer, a leader of, you know, music, but to be a leader of prayer, of worship, or whatever that means to you. And if you want to put it into the context of Miriam and Moses being prayer leaders also, that's great. One thing I'll say is it, it's a responsibility that I, I don't take lightly. It's it's a huge thing to be asked to be in prayer, uh, let alone to lead others into prayer. And for me, prayer is not just one thing. It's not just one mood. It's not just one style of music. It's not even just music. It is as wide ranging as the human condition because it is part of what makes us and keeps us human. Um, so music is one of what I think is a great access point. And it's for some people their main access point. It's certainly not the only one. But I see it as my responsibility to help facilitate somebody else's experience, not bring them into mine, because prayer is so individual, so unique. I agree really strongly with what Deb just said about it's a sacred responsibility. And I'm thinking about, you know, 
maybe you guys have had this same interaction with people that drives me crazy, you know, congregant or someone will come up to me and say, you know, you could audition for The Voice. And my feeling is like, I roll. I don't want to be on The Voice. I do this on purpose. I don't do this because I couldn't be real famous. You know, like I, that's not, that's not the point. And so I'm trying to now sort of specify what is the point. And I think one of the reasons I've always been drawn to prayer and song leading in a specifically Jewish context as opposed to theater or the secular world in any way is that prayer is one of the few experiences where we sort of directly acknowledge that there are things that are much larger than us in the world. I think especially in the Western world, in the United States, it's all about me all the time. Maybe I feel that way also because, you know, we're still young people and sort of like at the end of that developmental phase of like really trying to figure out who we are. And prayer is a space where it's really just not about me. And of course, I need to help lead it now. I need to help facilitate that. And so, of course, I'm inserting my voice in some way. And really the goal for me as a shlichat tzibur is to be a vehicle for whatever prayer someone needs in that moment. And just as Deborah said, it's not always the same kind of music. It's not always music. It can provide many different access points for people to to acquire that feeling of there's something much larger and I'm connected to these other people who are having this same type of experience as me, even if it's in a different avenue. There's something really special about that that doesn't exist in other types of work for me. I don't know if any of that made sense. Did that make sense? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, something else that's also coming up for me is that prayer is both an individual and a team sport, that there are prayers that we cannot say unless we're in community if we're following the letter of the law. So this idea that it is both Ashira and it is Shiru, it is all of us together and it is each of us individually doing the work and prayer is hard. Yeah, I love that prayer can feel different at different moments. And and I also love that it's a structure, it's a mantra that we come back to as a people words that connect us to every community around the world, to every family member and and Jewish person that prayed these words before us. And I, I love that the different melodies reflect different times and different emotions of, of people and communities that were experiencing different moments of history and different big events. And really prayer and especially when it's paired with singing prayer it feels like it's it's not performative like like you said Danielle it's it's something from deep within it's something that goes beyond really even language it's like from your heart in my experience amazing I want to cap the conversation here um because we could go on for a very long time talking about the nature of prayer and what it means to be a leader in worship. To close out this section, if you had one message to share with our listeners, what would your call to action be? What are you hoping your listeners will do 
after hearing this episode. I hope that we all do the hard work of journeying through the wilderness, uh, wherever that may be, however long it stretches, however hard it is to see the shore on the other side, just to keep putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward on the journey. In the same vein to sort of acknowledge that we're at a moment of immense transformation in maybe some good ways and maybe some really hard, challenging ways and to let ourselves sort of feel the birth pains of that, right? You know, walking through the sea to the other side, some people say it's as if we were reborn as a people. And I think we're sort of going through a womb wilderness moment now and, uh, and we'll reach the promised land on the other side maybe someday and we don't know what that will look like at all. And this darkness, maybe it's kind of like the darkness of the womb. There can be growth there. It's not all bad and terrible and scary. There can be positive change and transformation that's happening during this difficult time. Yeah, I would say um, be gentle with yourself. And this idea of love and fear keeps coming up in some of my conversations lately. And I would say do your best to show up with love and to try to make decisions from love and not from fear, especially in a time when there is, there can be a lot of things that are scary. But expect to receive love and, and show as much as you can because the world really needs it right now. My name is Happy Hoffman, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist. And this week of the pandemic was sponsored by peanut butter and hard-boiled eggs. Miriam and the women danced and danced the whole night long. In Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea that appears in this Torah portion, Moses' Ashira Ladonai, I will sing to Adonai, becomes Miriam's Shiru Ladonai. Everyone sing to Adonai, the change in language reflecting the transformation that the Israelites and the mixed multitude had experienced during the crossing of the sea. While they began their journey, each singing their own individual songs, by the end, they had become one collective people, one united voice. This is the sound of one voice. This is the sound of one voice, one spirit, one voice, the sound of one who makes a choice. This is the sound of one voice, this is the sound of is the sound of voices too, the sound of me singing with you, helping each other to make it through. 
is the sound of voices three singing together in harmony surrendering to the mystery this is the sound of voices three this is the sound of I know we didn't tell the people that as this has been getting done that I have bronchitis this week, which might be why I sound a little parched. And I am, I gotta tell you, just dying for a drink and, and this water just isn't cutting it. I know it should be. I know Bachelot is all about water, but you know, I guess to split the divide, is it possible that you have a thirst quenching drink for Midrashic Mixology this week? As it happens, <laughs> we do. <laughs> With this incredible miracle of a portion, we bring you the beverage unlike all other beverages, the Tide Turner. (laughs) With a nod to the parting of the Sea of Reeds, we wanted to gift you the blessing of a split-based cocktail, that is, a drink with two complementary alcoholic bases that make up the drink. For this delicious cocktail, take two parts vodka, two parts white rum, and one part blue carousel liquor, you know, to make it blue, like the waters, okay, cool. (laughs) Add in one part ginger ale or a clear soda of your choice, and one part lime juice. Combine all the ingredients with ice into a pitcher and stir. Rim your glass with salt for a contrasting edge to the sweet drink and to remind you of the sea waters. Garnish with an orange wheel to remind you of Miriam's timbrels. And make sure that you move carefully because it can be hard to dance with such a great drink in your hand. For a non-alcoholic version, switch out the vodka with white grape juice, the rum for pineapple juice, and use butterfly pea flour to color the drink blue. We hope this refreshing drink keeps you cool as you move from dancing to wandering in the desert or, you know, from your bedroom to your living room. Either way, l'chaim. Yeah, L'chaim! <laughs> that sounds delicious, and I'm so glad the Tide Turn has nothing to do with the Tide Pods. <laughs> Nanda? <laughs> nothing? All right. 
yeah, it excellent. still sounds delicious. <laughs> that joke was a little too clean for my taste. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds fabulous. Oh. Are we all going to make it together? Is that what happens I next? so wish we were in a time where we could share a picture right now. <laughs> Well, so rolling off the tide of that incredible drink, Gabe, you know, it, it, it brings a tear to my eye, but it's time for thank yous and closing cues. And so Deborah, Happy, Danielle, Idan, and Gabe, man, there are a lot of you. Moses says Ashira, Miriam says Shiru, encouraging us to sing whether or not we're on key, who knows. What is a lyric you can't help but sing out loud? Deborah, we're starting with you. Um, I I think it would probably be expected or most appropriate for me to to have some brilliant text or Judaic song to insert here, but honestly, the the thing that comes to my mind first is within the Spice Girls 1996 smash hit "Wannabe." As soon as we get to the Melby rap in the middle, I I. Even if it's through my headphones, uh, God help anyone who's around me, it's coming out my mouth out loud. There's no way it can't. Okay, but will you do it right now? <laughs> <laughs> we might run into some copyright issues. <laughs> That's fair. Um, happy. Um, I would say the... I mean, like the bomp, bomp, bomp and the sweet Caroline. It's like, how can you not sing that? <laughs> it was like what came to my mind. And also the Chickity China, the Chinese chicken song by the Bernie <laughs> Ladies. That song gets me. I can't not sing that. Well. That's right. One yes. week, their worst One song. Week. But I, I res- you know, I respect <laughs> you that you, you love the Bernie Good Ladies. It's totally fine. And our... Boston-based co-host is a, a very big fan that you picked Sweet Caroline. I just wanted to mention I loved how calmly you just said Chickity China the Chinese Chicken. <laughs> and it it really just it was it warmed my heart. <laughs> I couldn't think of the name of the song off the top of my head. <laughs> One week. Cantor Danielle Rudnitsky. Uh, I love this crew, I just have to say, and our song choices so far. I will continue the theme of non-sacred texts or brilliant uh, connections to the Torah portion and say, given the events of our country this week, after having said that we're recording early, I'm thinking of the sync smash hit. Ain't no lie, baby, bye, bye, bye. Nice. Bye, bye. Nice. <laughs> Uh, the dance moves and Happy's backup was truly, truly uh, a wonderful, wonderful thing to behold. At your service. E Don. So my choice is something that I've had in my head a lot lately. Recently, I was visiting Memphis, Tennessee. You see a lot of my family, where Happy is from. Where actually a lot of my family goes to the synagogue that Happy works at, Temple Israel. Shout out to the Sussers and the Roberts clans. That's amazing. And, um... On the, on the road trip there, it was me, my partner, Agnes, and my mom. And we were listening to old CDs that my mom has in the car. And one we were listening to was Harry Chapin. And in my opinion, 
his best song, I don't know if it's necessarily his most famous song, uh, is Flowers Are Red, which is the best song. And it is, I've been like singing it for like the past two weeks nonstop. Yes. And I'm not going to sing it. And my excuse for that is copyright issues, but also you don't want to hear me sing. But just to read some of the lyrics for those who don't know the song, it's about a kid who wants to color all these colors. And the teacher is like, no, flowers are red and green leaves are green. There's no need to see flowers any other way than the way they always have been seen. Dum, 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 dum. And the little boy <laughs> says, there are so many colors in the rainbow, so many colors in the morning sun, so many colors in a flower, and I see every one. And she kind of shuts him down to the point where he says, fine, you're right, I'll do what you say. Goes to a new school, and the teacher there sees him coloring all of his leaves green and all of his flowers red and says, what are you doing? There are so many colors in the rainbow. There are so many colors in the morning sun. There are so many colors in a flower. And I see everyone. And I think it's just like the most profound, beautiful thing in the world. And I think it's something we should all live by. And that is all. Beautiful. Are we going to get in trouble that I sang part of Bye 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 by NSYNC? No. Okay, great. We'll be fine. Bye bye. Gabe? I, I really want to say like Bruce Springsteen. Like, I love Bruce Springsteen. I want it to be Thunder Road. I really want that to be my answer. But I, it, to be completely honest, after the, like, millionth <laughs> performance of Fiddler on the Roof, it's probably just the word tradition. Just anytime anybody says the word tradition, which comes up a lot when you're, like, a cantorial student, it's there. Yeah. There's a really important song that Gabe also can't not help but sing the lyrics to, uh, which is his own creation of the potato song. What? No copyright issues there. <laughs> Sorry, cooking it up. I, I wrote a song about potatoes. It was the first song I ever wrote. Um, goes, I love potatoes. Potatoes are the best fruit. Okay, they're not a fruit. They're more of a starch. Potato, potato, potato. There are more verses where you teach the kids how to say potato in lots of different languages, which means that I now know how to say potato in a lot of different languages. I know how to say it in Russian because of that song. Right. Kartoshka. It's a very good word to know. Um, (laughs) It's a good word. But um, yeah, you you might be thinking to yourself, Gabe, you must have been like seven when you wrote that song because that's like a pretty, uh, yeah, I um, believe I was like 21 when I wrote that song. So that's great. So yeah. What inspired you? What potato? That's a great question. (laughs) I would would assume the the essence of potatoes. (laughs) The, the real inspiration was that I had run out of Hanukkah song, mm-hmm. back pocket Hanukkah songs, as I was filling in for a song leader friend at a music educator job. And I said, you know what, I guess I'm going to need to uh, make something up. And so for 20 minutes, I was going, kartoshka means potato. Kartoshka is potato in Russian. <laughs> The Russians eat potatoes. I eat them too. Kartoshka, kartoshka, potato. In every language. 
I had teachers at the back of the room Googling how to say potato in different languages. So the song that I generally have to sing the lyrics to, no, I've got two. One is, why do you build me up, buttercup baby? And I'm not going to finish it because, you know, I'll get yelled at. And the other is, video kill the radio star. You're welcome for everyone who's now jamming out to this incredible music-filled episode. I I had to get some music in there because I am the non-musician in this group of wonderful humans. Listen, you know, sometimes you just want to be a part of the conversation. And I wanted to be a part of the conversation. And let's face it, happy Danielle, Deborah, some people might want to continue the conversation with you. And if they do, how could they find or follow you? Happy. You can follow me on Instagram at happy, H-A-P-P-I-E dot Hoffman or Happy Hoffman Music on Facebook. I'd love to connect. Cantor Danielle Rodnitsky. You can find me also on Instagram at drodnitsky, R-O-D-N-I-Z-K-I, or on Facebook as Danielle Rodnitsky. I really look forward to connecting. You can find me there on social media or by email. You can find my email on the Facebook page. Or you can find me at Westchester Reform Temple in Scarsdale, New York, wrtemple.org. And Deborah Winter. Uh, I am on most social media platforms as Deborah Winter, D-E-B-R-A, Winter like the season, or weekly with Temple Micah, uh, which you can find templemicah.org. Amazing. Uh, and with that, Danielle, Deborah, happy. Any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? May the turning tides be ever in our favor. May we all dive deep <laughs> into this moment of transformation and have hope that we're going to come out the other side okay and eventually find our promised land, whatever that might be. Amen, amen. One of my favorite vaguely Jewish, vaguely related to Beshalach jokes is the age-old question, why do seagulls fly over the sea? Of course, because if they flew over the bay, they would be bagels. (laughs) Oh, goodness, that's a good one, Deb. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I hope you do actually uh, put in that drum hit, you (laughs) done. I don't have anything else to add. I don't have a joke, but I will say... Sing from your heart, and it's been so wonderful to connect with all of you over this podcast. It has been truly a a pleasure. I would say doing this podcast was definitely a a high note for me, and (laughs) really a huge thank you to Kendra Danielle Rodnitsky, to Deborah Winter, to Happy Hoffman, to the best co-host a person could ask for. Thank you, Gabe Snyder, and really, Idan... I mean, I don't know how many different ways we can say it each week. You're wonderful. You're perfect. You're awesome. You never come to a recording without a snack because, as you said last time, like, you know, sometimes somebody's got to eat. And I'm just so grateful to have joined in song with all of you this week. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your words. And most of all, thank you for your music. You know, Gabe, a lot of the time I feel like people believe that that musicians, that cantorial soloists, that cantors, that song leaders, they don't have such a connection to the text. Is that true? 
I would argue that cantors and musicians and really the, the people who are uh, heading up the leading of worship experiences have the best connection to the text. In fact, they kind of have to because they're the ones who need to translate and transmit that text to the people so that those people can then find their connection with something greater than themselves. I think that came through loud and clear, especially when Happy talked about music as an access point. I think that it's generally rare that somebody doesn't love music. I mean, we all might like different types of music, and some things might resonate with us more than others, but music's a pretty universal love, and I guess, sure, it can be a real access point to hard subjects, like the pandemic, like, you know, what's going on in the world today, like Judaism even. Definitely. And we see that in our tradition as far back as the Song of the Sea, where upon leaving Egypt and going to a place that none of these people had ever been, going on this journey through the wilderness, seeing these really terrifying miracles and plagues, that these people start singing. That's a really big deal, and it's indicative of how music affects us emotionally and how our emotions affect music. So from what I understand, when we feel sad, we sing. When we feel happy, we sing. When we feel angry, we sing. When we get excited, we sing. Is that right? Sing and eat. That's the Jewish way. Okay. But what about dancing? I mean, dancing plays a part in this episode. Nope. I don't dance. I'm from that town in Footloose. L'chaim. L'chaim. I'm Cantor Danielle Rodniski, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist. And we're all just trying to do our best to keep our heads above the water. <laughs> 